1: Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
2: The story of how the First World War began has been told so many times. Archduke Franz Ferdinand, heir to the throne of the Habsburg Empire, is shot dead on June 28th, 1914, in the Bosnian capital of Sarajevo. The war begins, and it doesn't end until the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918. And that, of course, was today, 104 years ago, the day the guns fell silent. Yet is this the full story of why the war began? Well, I'm your host James Rogers, this is the Warfare Podcast... And as we mark Remembrance Day in Europe and Veterans Day in the US, I've invited author and historian Paul Miller-Melamed onto the podcast to provide us with a slightly different perspective. Now, rather than focusing in on the bang of the assassin's gun fired by Gavrilo Princip, or reinforcing the mythology that has arisen around this assassination, Paul embeds the incident into the longer term context and turmoil in the Balkans. And by doing so, he lays out for us the surprising historical foundations behind this political murder. Enjoy. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you very much, James. Well, it's great to have you on the podcast. I'm on the move at the moment. I'm in the U.S., so uh, apologies if I'm I'm a little echoier than usual. That's apologies to our listeners and to Paul as well. Where are you in the world, Paul?
3: I'm actually in Southern California right now, visiting family. Oh, it's a hard life. It's a tough life, yes, definitely. (laughs) We don't see much rain out here. No,
2: no. So you're down in like San Diego area or even further
3: south? In the LA area, north of LA, Oxnard, California. Oh, fantastic. you you lucky Yeah, And where are you usually based in the world? Typically now I'm based in Poland. I'm at the Catholic University of Lublin in Poland, and that's my new base as of a couple of years ago, since I got married, actually. So that's where I am. Very different climate than here in Southern California, obviously.
2: Hey, look, Paul, as our listeners know, I'm usually based in Denmark, and I'm British. Uh And if I tell you that Denmark is a country that has more rain than Britain, then you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. It is, is grey, <laughs> it is beautiful in so many ways with its uh-huh. hygge and its great beer. But um, yeah, I think uh, try and spend as much time in Southern California as you can. Paul. Yeah. Okay. But your time in Poland, then, is that something that has influenced your turn towards working even more on this pivotal moment in history, the one we're going to talk about today, the origins of the First World War, the origins, that I suppose, the basics of which were always taught at GCSE at high school, where Archduke Franz Ferdinand is shot and we start the First World War. That's kind of the boiled down version. Is that what drew you to that area of research?
3: Well, to be perfectly honest, what drew me to Poland physically was marriage and personal reasons rather than professional reasons. But I do have to say that it's made me think more broadly about why this particular assassination that took place in Sarajevo in the Balkans, deep south, eastern Europe, why it had so many reverberations throughout the European continent. So I began to think more broadly, what were the reactions of ordinary Polish people when they opened up the newspaper and they read about the Sarajevo assassination? Most of them probably shrugged their shoulders, but those who were living in Galicia, which was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, certainly knew that their next emperor, okay, was, was just assassinated. Franz Ferdinand was the heir to the throne of the habsburg monarchy or the Austro-Hungarian monarchy, however you want to term it. So a big chunk of Poland was part of that empire because, of course, the country of Poland as an independent nation-state did not exist in 1914. It had been divided up between Germany, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and Russia. Oh, wow. So as
2: we're in the world at this moment in time, we're still, you know, trying to process and deal with the death of Her Majesty the Queen But to put this into context, it would almost be like someone assassinating Prince Charles when he was Prince Charles before he became king. And then the heir apparent being removed and uncertainty being cast across the region. So this is a major blow in terms of the politics of the Habsburg Empire and also just the the politics of the region.
3: Absolutely, but even more so because the power of the emperor was much greater than the power that's embodied with the king or queen, the monarchy in Britain today. Politically, the emperor had a great deal of say in the everyday politics and foreign policy of the Habsburg monarchy. That's not to say that there wasn't a parliament that was significant. It was more significant in Vienna than it was in Budapest, but nonetheless, it existed. And so there was a quasi-balance of power there, but the emperor was a very powerful person. And that's a major difference to understand. And moreover, there was a sense, and maybe this is a nice parallel with Britain, that his empire, once the great symbol of monarchy, Franz Joseph, parallel to Queen Elizabeth II, was gone, what would hold this empire together? What was the glue for all these diverse peoples, the Czechs and the Hungarians and the Croatians and the Italians and the Romanians and the Poles, and of course the Austrians? What was the glue? And Franz Joseph represented one element of that glue for the empire. So once his heir was gone, and he was already very old at the time, he was in his 80s, there was a greater sense of uncertainty even than you get in the UK, where people are now sort of saying, well, what's going to happen with Scotland now that uh, Elizabeth II is gone, for example? So I think it's a good parallel, but it's an even stronger one. But that's not the reason, and I have to say this, that's not the reason Austria-Hungary went to war at the end of the day. We'll leave that for another question, I assume, that's coming.
2: Well, it's going to come at right, right now, yes. Paul, because the monarchy might be one way of gluing together a nation-state, a peoples with very different ambitions within different sections of a country, like you say, as with the United Kingdom, But as we look at this history, we can also say there's another thing that binds people together in a more nationalistic way, and and that is the declaration of war. It brings a country together in a time of supreme emergency. So was that part of Emperor Franz Joseph's thinking when he did declare war on the kingdom of Serbia?
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. And this has been examined in every which way by historians, as you could imagine, as to why he felt the need to declare war and to what extent was it a desperate act of existential imperial angst, let's say, that his empire would fall apart unless there was a showing of strength. And that's what this represented. And this represented also an act as he issued his proclamation to all his peoples, to his many diverse peoples, that I just listed some of the different nationalities that the empire encompassed, that this could be a binding kind of situation or declaration. True enough, at the same time, perhaps it was a desperate last ditch effort to keep together this diverse and far flung empire in an age of nation states. Other scholars have interpreted it that way. So there's a wonderful debate that goes on among historians and I won't get into the intricate details. It's very high charge debate, but it's how much at risk was the Habsburg monarchy of dissolving prior to the assassination versus what were the forces that held it together? And there were a lot of things the monarchy had going for it. And so it would be wrong to assume, as many books do, that it was virtually at the, you know, the end of its rope, and therefore it had to do something desperate, and it declared war against this small country of Serbia in order to rally the peoples, right, and do exactly what you just said, James, which is use war as a means of uniting a country. But I'm sure
2: that he had no intent of triggering the Great War, the First World War. So, what other regional, political, or even broader geopolitical considerations? drove
3: this declaration of war? Was there pressure from much larger nations? That's an excellent question. Highly debated question, of course. There was an alliance system, which everybody learns about in school, right? There was militarism, there were alliances, there was imperialism, there was competition between these states. These states were the most powerful countries in the world in terms of their empires, in terms of their armies. And Europe had everything to lose by going to war with itself. So why would it ultimately? Well, the Habsburg Empire was afraid essentially that the Serbs would be supported by the Russians and for good reasons. And if the Serbs were supported by the Russians, the Russians were in an alliance with France and the Habsburgs, the Austro-Hungarians were in an alliance with Imperial Germany. So one of the first acts, literally on the day Franz Ferdinand is buried, that night, a messenger, a minister in the foreign office of the Austro-Hungarian Empire boards an overnight train, goes to Berlin, and this is where he asks the German government if they're gonna support us in case that this regional war that we desire should become a flashpoint for a larger European wide war. Okay, because as you said, the Habsburg just wanted to smash Serbia. They saw Serbia as this terrible, small, but painful thorn in its side that had a long history of agitating in favor of parts of the monarchy in which there were lots of Serbs or people who spoke the Serbo-Croatian language, which at the time was not called Serbo-Croatian, it was just Serbian or Croatian, depending on who you were, as it is now again, since the breakup of Yugoslavia, that this irredentism, this sense of the unredeemed peoples who are our peoples, our Serbian people in the Austro-Hungarian empire, this nationalism was very much a part of the propaganda in the newspapers, in the schools, and that sort of thing, and it led to several assassination attempts. But most of those assassination attempts, ironically, came from inside the empire. They were not Serb nationalists, but they were Bosnians or Croatians or people inside the empire. So at the end of the day, while Serbia represented this nationalist agitator, so to speak, it wasn't really an existential threat the way the Austro-Hungarian leaders saw it. There had been several attempts to deal diplomatically with Serbia, and they could have continued to go forward with that strategy. But in 1914, with the assassination, several leaders in Vienna got together at a meeting on July 7th, after the Germans issued their support. This is the so-called blank check. The Germans said, yeah, we've got your backs, just in case the Russians come in. And they met and they said, no, we've tried diplomacy. It hasn't worked. This time it's gonna have to be war, come what may. How much
2: of a tyrant really was Julius Caesar? Would we have ever stood a chance against the first dinosaurs? And did Helen of Troy really have the power to launch a thousand ships? Well, you can expect all of this and more from the Ancients on History Hit. Join us twice a week, every week, as we explore some of the greatest moments of our ancient past. Subscribe to the Ancients wherever you get your podcasts.
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over.
2: This is very, very fascinating, Paul, because, you know, instead of focusing in on that bang of the gun and the assassin Gavrilo Princip, but the broader political repercussions and influences behind the firing of that gun are just endlessly interesting. So perhaps you could tell us, you know, is there any air of conspiracy within this. I know that during that period, the Black Hand Gang that Gavrilo Princip was a member of are meant to be part of the broader global anarchist movement, the anarchist movement that wants to bring down established orders of power so they might not be aligned to a particular nation-state. But in this context, was there any kind of larger puppet master that was guiding the hand of Princip as he released his finger on the trigger?
3: Great questions. And there's a lot that I have to unpack from that. Thanks for that. No is the brief answer. There was no guiding nationalist force that was pushing Princip into the assassination. And this is an important point of my book. My book is called Misfire, but Princip's obviously his two shots both hit targets. Now, one of them was not who he was supposed to kill, but he killed Franz Ferdinand. That was his major target. So why misfire? Well, that gets into the question of who really misfired, and that was the great powers. But what motivated Princip and this whole idea of the Black Hand gang and all of that? First of all, I have to correct you on one point, but this is a common error that even scholars regularly make, and that is that Princip was a member of the Black Hand. He was not. Princip was a Bosnian, he was a Bosnian Orthodox Christian, which means he was a Bosnian Serb, but he was a subject of the Austro-Hungarian monarchy. He was not a citizen of Serbia. Now he had gone to Belgrade to study as a lot of young Bosnian Serbs did. And even some young Bosnian Muslims went to Belgrade to study because Belgrade was free and this they spoke their language and they had recently established more schools and it was a part of this budding state. But Princip, in all likelihood, and the, one of the fascinating things is this is chapter four of my book, is the entire so-called conspiracy, and this is the word you use, for the assassination is not definitively resolved. Most things you read will say that it was planned and organized in Serbia by the Black Hand Group. What was the Black Hand Group, by the way? We have to talk about that. We're, you know, What was this thing with this insidious, <laughs> evil sounding name, right? But rather it was instigated by young Bosnian students. One was a worker, the rest were students who were living in Serbia and read about the coming of the Archduke and felt an affront because Austro-Hungarian policy towards Bosnia was very colonialist in a lot of ways. Political freedoms were lacking. There was still rural poverty. This is a whole other area of one chapter of my book, which deals with the question of Austria, were they good or bad for Bosnia? Because they built roads and they brought in industry and all this, but they still repressed the people, particularly the Serbs, quite a lot. So this was an act of freedom, independent of Serbia. Now, the bigger question becomes, what do you want once you get free, your freedom? Do you want to join with Serbia as the Serb nationalists of the black hand want? OK, so the black hand, which is formally called unification or death.
2: <laughs> oh, wow. So we're pretty clear yeah. about what they want then.
3: Unification or death. Exactly. That was their formal name in Serbian. It's ujedinjenje ili smrt. <laughs> it sounds really it's fun to roll off the tongue, let's say. Unification or death was colloquially known as the black hand. And they were basically a group of largely, but not exclusively, military officials, military personnel, who didn't feel that their own government was moving quickly enough on the nationalist issue. In first, their focus was nationalism in the south, Serbs in Macedonia to the south, which had been part of the Ottoman Empire. But Bosnia had been liberated from the Ottoman Empire and was now part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So they also had an interest in those Serbs, Bosnian Serbs, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So their idea was unifying all Serbs. And how you define a Serb is then a whole other issue. Are Croats, who speak Serbo-Croatian language with a slightly different dialect, are they Serbs, etc., cetera, So there was a Yugoslav or a South Slavic movement. That's what Yug means. Yug means South. And Princip was a Yugoslav nationalist. He was interested, and his fellow conspirators for the most part, were not great Serbian nationalists, but they saw Serbia as a free land that they could emulate and perhaps lead to the unification of all South Slavs. So he wasn't doing this on behalf of some Serbian nationalist agenda as is typically depicted in a lot of the literature. Now there's another side of the argument which says he was a freedom fighter, right? And he was acting independently. And, but this gets sort of clouded out by the more intriguing story of a mastermind in Belgrade, and that's the Black Hand. The Black Hand's main target of animus was the Serbian government, which it felt was not nationalistic enough. And that's what they were trying to overthrow. But in the process, somebody had some connection, and when these young Bosnians, including Gavrilo Princip, living in Belgrade, Decided on this assassination in March or April of 1914, they needed weapons.
2: Yep, absolutely. You've got to have some way of carrying out these attacks and weapons aren't always absolutely. easy to get hold of, especially at this point. In time. Exactly.
3: And there had been wars in the Balkans, throwing out the Ottomans further from the Balkans. And so some of these Serb military people had some bombs left over. They probably got in contact with one of them who was a Bosnian, but he had fought for Serbia during the Balkan Wars against the Ottoman Empire, in which Serbia expanded tremendously in size and population and was very successful. And through these connections, it led them to a person in the black hand, a guy named Tankosic. Now Tankosic was a real radical nationalist. And he may well have, one author argues recently, on his own supplied the weapons, or more likely, in my opinion, he went to his boss. And this is this guy, Apis, right? A-P-I-S, that you often read about. His full name was Dragutin Dmitrievich. And he was one of the leaders of the Black Hand. And he may have given the go-ahead for the assassination in terms of, I mean, not sorry, not for the assassination, but for the weapons transfer, the gun. Right, however, (laughs) it's not clear that he actually wanted the assassination to succeed because the assassination represented, as everybody knew, a great threat to Serbia. You knock off the heir to the throne of the empire, you're sure to have an angry, large empire that's 10 times your size and 10 times your population and it's on your border. And Belgrade, the capital of Serbia, is literally on the border with the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Okay, it's on the river that borders the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Right across that Sava, Danube confluence of rivers is Austria-Hungary. That's where the First World War begins, with bombs launched from Austrian gunboats on Belgrade. That's how close they are. They don't even have to move, basically. So to back to the black hand, and feel free to interject if I'm moving in too many different directions. I am
2: fascinated, Paul. You are providing Great. so much color to Great. a period of history which we only narrowly focus on like we're looking through a straw. Yeah. And to tie in this broader <laughs> kind of political but also geographical aspect just really helps us understand the
3: broader context of this. So please continue. Sure. Well, thanks. So unification or death, better known as the Black Hand, did not, as a organization, plan the Sarajevo assassination. Somebody within it provided weapons, very likely. And the assassins carried out a successful assassination. Now, there were efforts in the days leading up to the assassination by officials in unification or death to call it off. Once the organization as a whole Learned about this planned attempt, they were afraid, what if it succeeds? Then what? What are the consequences for Serbia going to be? If Serbia doesn't exist as a country anymore, then it can't have any redenta, then it can't grow into greater Serbia at all, right? If it's smashed and defeated by this large monarchy on its doorstep. So there were efforts to cancel the assassination that almost certainly came from the Black Hand leadership itself. So what we know for certain is that these young Bosnians, and when I say young, the oldest was in his late 20s. The youngest was 17, okay? That's young.
2: That's very young, yeah.
3: Yes, and they were highly idealistic. And one of them was sort of leaning towards, well, maybe a political solution would be better than a political murder. (laughs) You know, they were having debates within their own circles about what's the most efficacious means of liberating ourselves from Austria-Hungary or having a true democracy within the empire. So not all of them had come to terms with assassination, but the core that was there in Sarajevo, the seven Bosnians, all Bosnians, none of them Serbs none of them citizens of Serbia, but Bosnian citizens, in other words, subjects of Austro-Hungary, they were killing their own heir, okay? Their own heir, not some foreign heir, not some foreign country. They all decided to go through with this assassination, mainly because of one person. And that was Princip himself. So
2: he was the driving force behind this. He's the one who manages to keep them united in that small group. That's right. They can can really steer around all of the external intervention, the attempts to stop this. Absolutely. Successfully carry out this attack.
3: That's it exactly, yeah. Princip was absolutely dedicated to this idea of political murder. And interestingly, he's from a peasant family, very poor in Western Bosnia. He's felt the repression the most directly. Now, he did get to go to the big city and get an education. He went to Sarajevo. That's like, wow, a city of 52,000 people. That was the capital. (laughs) That's how small it was at the time, the capital of Bosnia, and he got an education. But that education included reading about socialism and anarchism and various assassination attempts against Russian czars and things like this. And he became convinced that the only means was this kind of direct action. Now he was a very smart guy. He read a lot, he read endlessly, okay? But he drew a lesson that clearly was complicated.
2: Are you trying to say, Paul, that we've got some erstwhile history professor or political theorist somewhere who's been forgotten by history who uh, may have indoctrinated someone and and contributed to the start of the First World War?
3: Well, in a sense, this stuff about political assassination was out there. This was an era full of political assassinations, right? Franz Joseph, the emperor's wife, had been assassinated by an anarchist. American president was assassinated by an anarchist in 1903. Italian leadership. Yes, McKinley. McKinley was killed. That's right. Exactly. There were all sorts of political murders going on. And that's another point I make in my book because part of the rhetoric with the black hand ties them in then with al-Qaeda. And these are academics who are doing this, not just, let's say, people who are, not trained to try to get their history absolutely, you know, who are making these analogies with terrorism. And... There is an
2: interesting thing there, though, Paul, because I know the work you're talking about. You're talking about Rappaport's waves of terrorism theory. And how it links that different terrorist waves throughout history, whether they be in reaction to colonialism or in reaction to capitalism or they're religiously motivated. They learn from different periods of history when another terrorist group has taken place. And there are these arguments that Osama bin Laden learnt from the early waves of anarchism. But there are a couple of interesting parallels, like you say this information was spreading quickly about kind of this global anarchism. And that was spread by the first mass media, by newspapers that were able to be shipped by ever longer range and faster moving trains. Also, Absolutely. am I right in thinking sure. that maybe through sure. Telegram at this period? Yeah, okay, sure. so through Telegram as well, which is the yeah. almost instant transfer of information around the world. And then for one of the first times in history, you've got the privatization of lethal force. You have these these pistols, these smaller guns that can be concealed mm-hmm. that people can own or illicitly get hold of and carry out these acts of political killing without having to have entire state apparatus and militaries yes. behind them. So there are some interesting links, aren't there, between that period yes. of history and now?
3: There absolutely are. One interesting and important difference and distinction I would make, and the thing that makes it less an exciting story about terrorism is that they were not mass murderers in the sense of today's notion of terrorism, killing innocent civilians. They felt terrible about accidentally murdering Franz Ferdinand's wife and they all begged forgiveness and they felt sorry. And they, you know, Princip himself said, I didn't intend to kill her. You know, this is very different than the kind of targeting of innocent civilians in order to create a world crisis. They created a world crisis by killing a royal couple, okay, that had repercussions that down the line led to the First World War after a month.
2: But But, they're still terrorists uh, in the fact, aren't they, Paul, that they carried out an act of, a lethal act with political ambitions.
3: Exactly. In their 19th century context, they are terrorists. And they use the word terrorist to describe themselves at the trial.
2: Isn't that because terrorism at that time wasn't a negative term? It was almost uh, right. almost akin to freedom fighter. You're a terrorist. You're fighting for the cause.
3: I mean, yes and no. It's You're still talking about carrying out a pretty vicious act, and you can fight for the cause in multiple ways. And the terrorists decided on a act of murder, essentially, that was clearly going to have repercussions beyond the immediate... Now, the assassins didn't expect World War I, clearly, and they weren't trying to spark this, but it's clearly meant to lead to some sort of larger repercussions with the killing of the Tsar, the reform of the Russian Empire, for example, is clearly behind that. But at the same time, what I take issue with in my book is the overuse of the term terrorism in conjunction with contemporary mass killings. And I think that that's where it's exciting, just like the story of the black hand is exciting. And we want our history to be compelling. But unfortunately, what we have here is a very amateur group that didn't know how to fire a gun or ignite one of these grenades before they got the weapons. They had to be trained. So they were not trained, you know, highly trained professionals. They were not military soldiers or anything like this, but they were able to get a hold of weapons and to commit this, this act of terrorism, if you will, in the 19th century context. And that's what we, I think, one of the lessons, so to speak, history lessons of the assassination comes down to, that not that a seemingly small event could have huge disproportionate consequences, because this was one political murder, you know, in one, you know, smallish size Balkan town compared to the 10 million deaths approximately in World War One. But I think more significantly that how easy it is for people who are young and idealistic to get a hold of weapons and to commit heinous acts that whether or not this had led to the First World War, there's all sorts of reasons that something like this can be better prevented. For example, there were all sorts of warnings for Franz Ferdinand that there were assassination attempts. The security was abysmal on the day of his assassination. It was absolutely abysmal, much heavier security when his uncle went to the same city, Sarajevo, four years earlier. That's how I start my book. I think the key is that it's vigilance. It's how these young students got weapons, how they were able to get so close to the Archduke in the first place. And I begin my book with an assassination attempt that didn't happen. In fact, I have an article coming out in a journal that calls it a non-event. What's a non-event? It's an event that doesn't happen. It can also be something that you expect to have a big outcome, but it doesn't, like a diplomatic summit over climate change that has no results, and you say it was a non-event, right? So a non-event is the failure of this Bosnian nationalist, again a Bosnian, not a Serb, to kill the emperor when he visited in 1910. Well, he became a hero for these young Bosnians because he had done something, even though he failed. He didn't even pull out his gun. He had done something really brave. And he ended up trying to kill another official in the Bosnian government and he failed. And that's how we found out about his failed assassination attempt against the emperor. And he became this big, larger than life kind of hero, martyr figure for these young Bosnians because he had acted, right? He had acted. And his grave was a pilgrimage site for these young Bosnian radicals. It was in Sarajevo. Uh, It was supposed to be undisclosed, but they quickly found it and it became a pilgrimage site. And some of them, including Gavrilo Princip, went there the night before the assassination to pay their respects to this guy. His name's Bogdan, first name. And all the Austro-Hungarian authorities had to do was stake out the gravesite and arrest these guys and hold them there until Franz Ferdinand's procession was over. So there's lots of things that happen here. And this is how life itself works, there's no question. There's all sorts of unpredictable factors you can't control for everything. But I think that there are certain ways of thinking about the Sarajevo assassination that's not just putting it in the box of this vicious act of terrorism plotted in Belgrade by these mastermind professional conspirators and see it as something very amateur, very almost primitive in its planning, and had all sorts of ways in which it could have been found out about and prevented. And yet it happened. And once it happened, then all of the stories about Serbia and Serbia's involvement in official Serbia, the Serbian government was not involved in any way, shape or form in the assassination. Then they start coming out because then the justification for war has to be built. And then that filters into the historiography for the next hundred
2: years. You've really helped frame that for us so well, Paul. You know, it's a combination here where we look past that firing of the gun and we can start to see that the First World War was really inspired by more than just the firing of a gun, but by great power politics, family tragedy, anarchism, public outrage, intelligence failures, and that last minute determination of Princip himself. So as a final question to you, Paul, Was any of this avoidable once that gun had been fired? Could we have avoided the First World War?
3: Whoa, that's that's a great question, James, and it's a big question. Yes is the easy answer because historians shy away from this notion that everything is somehow inevitable. And a famous historian, a British historian, once said that war is always inevitable once it breaks out. So was it avoidable? Could there have been sort of a coming together of the great power leaders? There were attempts to do this. There were attempts by the monarchs themselves, Kaiser Wilhelm II in Germany, and his cousin Nicholas II in Russia to try to mediate something. There was an attempt by Lord Grey, the foreign secretary in Britain, to have coming together a conference. But Austria-Hungary was absolutely hell-bent on punishing the Serbs and doing it militarily. And ultimately, I think that while there are great power politics, as you said, and there are tensions, and there is the fact that France still wants Alsace-Lorraine and Germany's worried about a growing Russia and all of this that makes war seem like, well, maybe now is a good time to have a war. Maybe this is the thing that we could use to get this war because Russia's on our backs here in Germany. Germany stole our lands from France. British Empire is now concerned about German and Russian growth. All of these things come into the mix, right? But ultimately, at the end of the day, if Austria-Hungary decides upon a diplomatic solution to its Serbian irredentist problem, there's not going to be a war because the country that would have started it would have been such an obvious aggressor, and they didn't want that. And one of the things that you see in the post-war, actually during the World War itself, and in the immediate post-war period, is the publishing of documents. And they're called the white books or the blue books, depending on the country, to try to exonerate your country from guilt in starting the World War. So I think ultimately it comes down to the resolve of a very few people sitting in Vienna, And what I say at the end of my book is, you know, we all love to go to that site of the Sarajevo assassination and stand there on, there was a big banner on the 100th anniversary, the street corner that started the 20th century. And the Vienna Philharmonic was there, but nobody goes on July 7th to the building in Vienna where they sat around a table and they said, no diplomatic solution this time. We're going to war with Serbia. If Russia comes in, so be it. We're just gonna make sure the Germans have our backs. But other than that, we're doing this. This is not to simply say Austria-Hungary is responsible for the First World War, but they're probably the most responsible, Austria-Hungary and Germany, and then Russia as well are probably the most responsible, I would argue at least. Other people would have different positions on the geopolitics of the situation.
2: And it really shows us, Paul, it shows us the terrifying slippery slope to war yes, exactly, and how easy exactly. it can be to trigger exactly. a global conflict, something which is, of course, ever present in all our minds at this moment in time and, yes, and more absolutely. so for you, perhaps, living in Poland. Paul, thank you oh, yes. so much for your time. Tell us the name of the book and where we can buy it.
3: The name of the book is Misfire, the Sarajevo Assassination and the Winding Road to World War I. It's available at almost every venue online, Amazon and Waterstones and all of these places, right? And uh, hopefully in a few scattered bookstores. (laughs) I'm always searching bookstores myself. Sometimes I find it, sometimes I don't, but it's certainly available out there online at all the major venues. And I want to thank you too, James. This has been really illuminating for me and fun, you know, to put it simply. Very enjoyable experience. And I appreciate your excellent questions.
2: Hey, look, if you get me talking about the history of terrorism, I'm going to keep you all day. Paul, thank you (laughs) so much for the time. I'm going to put a link to your book in the show notes. And you're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thank you thanks for listening but before you go a reminder that you can now follow along online on twitter at historyhitww 2 on instagram at james rogers history and on tiktok also at james rogers history you can also subscribe to our free warfare wednesday's newsletter via the link in the show notes